Well, good morning. Wow. It's so good to see you this morning. Um, praise team, you guys did a fantastic job. Can we give them a round of applause? Oh, my goodness. They don't need me. They got this. They got this. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. I feel like JT, you know, before he preaches, like, that. that's how I feel inside. But I'm just going to tone it down. I just want to share a couple of praises uh, before I jump into a sermon. Praise God for that beautiful Christmas party that happened this past couple of days ago. I have a picture for you guys. Amen. Reagan, Cody, Laura, and the team, you guys did a fantastic job. Thank you so much. God is doing an amazing thing in our church. And for all the people who sang uh, the GMU International Student Hand, you guys blessed us so much with that Indian tune. I have no idea what you're saying, but there's so much joy in your spirit and countenance. I was dancing. I want more of that next time. Amen. Praise God by His grace. Everybody say, by His grace. grace. We were able to buy a house this summer. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. Uh, A friend said, hey, if you want to grow your faith, your prayer life, try buying a house in Northern Virginia. (laughs) My faith was like this small, you know, before the house, and now it's this big. Look at that. The middle picture, it doesn't look like that, by the way. That's stage, right? (laughs) If you come, you're going to see socks and shoes everywhere. I got three kids. I'm probably the worst one, yeah? So praise God, though. Praise God. Lastly, my my oldest turned 15 the other day. I have a 15 years old. Look at that. I can't wait to teach him how to drive. We're going to rock this place. We're going to blast some music, and we're going to go through Fairfax Lane. Oh, my goodness. The insurance is going to go up. Michael, yeah. He's like, yeah, you see. All right. Praise God. Wow. I'm getting old. That's what it is. Wow. Everybody have a Bible with you this morning? Go ahead. Get your Bible out. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It was on several short-term mission trips that the Lord confirmed my calling to be in full-time ministry. And uh, one particular trip, we were in Taiwan. Um, and usually the last couple of days, we would take, you know, to tour the city and... Uh, Debrief as a team and just hang out. How many of you have been to Taiwan? Give, give, raise your hand real quick. Yeah. One, one person. Thank you. Yeah. Taiwan is famous for what? Jog this down. It's so important. Stinky tofu. You got to try the stinky tofu. It's the best. It's like your cheese, blue cheese or whatever, right? Similar. And also, how many of you love bubble teas? Taiwan is the land of bubble tea. I think they created that thing, yeah? So we were just hanging out. And so a friend of ours took us to a temple. I've been to temple before. There's a huge Buddha uh, statue. And then I saw this man just worshiping, bowing down to this, you know, temple. You know, I've seen that, offering food, prayer, incense. But something caught my attention when he began to rub himself against the statue. Like, he was so passionate, you know, like rubbing. And so my first thought was, oh, my goodness, what is he doing? Doesn't he know that only Jesus can give him the ultimate blessing? Where are the Christians in Taiwan, right? To tell them that only Jesus can bless you. My second thought was, mm, well, can he see that this is a piece of metal? He has no ears to hear your prayer. His mouth cannot eat the food you offer. His nose can't smell. How could he be so blind, I said, right? Well, don't judge him just yet. Here in the West, we might not bow down to idols, right? We might not, but we often give our attentions, our affections, our hearts 
to created things instead of a creator God. Here are some examples. Um, studies show that smartphone user tap and swipe and touch the device in an average of 2,617 times a day. I was shocked when I saw that. 2,670 times a day, right? We're so attached to our devices. We cannot uh, live without them. Isn't that, isn't that scary? How about this one? Uh, this doesn't apply to me, but I'll share it anyway. I'm not judging anybody, but I'm just saying. We shout with great enthusiasm, right? When a white leather ball fly across the sky, yeah? And our, our favorite baseball team make it into the World Series. And some of us got really upset when our favorite baseball team don't win the World Series. I'm like, mind blowing, what? You know, you have friends and party, you eat chips, and you shout in front of a device, TV, and go, ah, ah. That's just amazing. How about this one? We dedicate majority of our lifespan to make as much as we can this little green paper called money. Many of us place our identity, our significance, our security, our worth on the amount of money we have in the bank. See, we might not bow down to a piece of metal, but we too walk in darkness when we give our full attention, affection to created things instead of our creator. No wonder our generation is so tired. I am depressed, yeah, anxious, self-medicated, and even suicidal more than previous generations. So what is the solution? Who will get us out of darkness? The Bible gives us a very clear answer. The way of darkness is not a formula, it's not a program, it's not a strategy. Rather, it is a person which leads us to our key verse for, for our Christmas series. John 1.14 said, the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the light of the world. He entered into darkness in order to lead us home. Last Sunday, Pastor Matthew reminded us that Jesus is the eternal word of God. In verses 1 to 5, theologians use three words to describe who Jesus is. First, Jesus is pre-existent, which means that the Son of God exists before his incarnation, the creation of the world. John 1, 1 said, in the beginning was the word. Jesus did not come, to, come into being on Christmas Day. He was already there before Genesis 1. Secondly, Jesus is co-existent. I keep kicking this thing. The Word was with God. Jesus is distinct from the Father and from the Holy Spirit, distinct in role and purposes. Thirdly, Jesus is self-existent. This is my favorite. John 1, 4 said, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Everything that exists came into existence through Jesus. We are created by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. And for our passage today, I see three important truths. Here's a big idea this morning. Jesus is the light of the world, and those who receive or believe him will have eternal life. And if Jesus is the ultimate light, we don't have to be anymore. All we have to do is point people to the light, and those who receive him will have life. First of all, we are not the ultimate light. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light, 
but came to bear witness about the light. The gospel writer interrupts his train of thought. In verse 6, they introduce a man whose name is also John. For practical reason, we're going to call him J.B., short for John the Baptist. First thing John wants us to know about John the Baptist, J.B., is that he is not the light. Notice his position and place. J.B. Was, hu- was a human messenger created by Jesus, for Jesus, placed in a specific time and place to point people to Jesus. Here's a couple of fun facts that we should know about J.B. Did you know that J.B. is the only prophet in Israel at that time? There were no contemporary. J.B. came from a priestly line since his dad was a high, high priest. J.B.'s birth was a miraculous birth since his parents were in their old age. J.B. did not drink the Kool-Aid in his time. He's like, what? Oh, let me explain. What I mean is that J.B. did not grow up in the religious system of his time. He lived in the desert. He wore camel hair. He ate raw honey and other stuff, right? But his unconventional lifestyle placed him outside of the religious corruption of his day. No wonder John chose J.B. to introduce Jesus. J.B. was not only positioned in a specific time and place. He also accepted his God-ordained position as a servant of God. A few verses down, some of the Jews were sent by the religious leader to question J.B. regarding his identity, probably because of his popularity. Verse 20 said, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The Jews continued to question him, And even after he said that he's not the Messiah, verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are not, if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize them with water, but among you stand one you do not know, even, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. In that culture, Untying someone's shoelace is a task belonged to a household slave. And JB admitted that even the task of a slave is too high, it's too, too much for me. I'm not worthy because he's so consumed and captivated by his Savior. He must increase and I must decrease. Likewise, the only way for us to accept our lowly position Right, as reflective light and not ultimate light is when we see Jesus as high and lifted up. When we, ne- when we, we will never see less of ourselves, think less of ourselves, talk less of ourselves until we see more of Jesus. How have you taken the place of the ultimate light? How have you tried to be the fixer in your relationship or to be the ultimate provider, protector in your home? The good news is that you don't have to this morning. Jesus is the ultimate light, savior of the world, so that you don't have to. When JB recognized Jesus as high, he willingly accepts his position as low, and that gives him a sense of purpose, which leads us to the second point this morning. As JB was appointed to bear witness to the light, we too are to point people to the light. Verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
J.B. derives meaning and purpose not from himself, but from Jesus. Notice the word witness is repeated three times in two verses. How does J.B. bear witness to the light, you may ask? Through his words and through his life. John 1.23 and Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah say. Apparently, J.B. Job's description is prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43. He is to be a voice calling people to prepare to receive Jesus. What's the purpose of a voice? I'll give you guys some suggestions. The voice is captivated, is first captivated by the word. The voice knows that he cannot live without the word. The voice is delighted with his role as a messenger. He knows that it's always about the message and not about the messenger. The voice brings awareness to the word. The voice knows he does not have the power to save. When your small group members come to you and, and you know, ask you to, for some help, you'll be like, I'm so sorry to hear that. I can't help you, but I know one who can. Let's pray. I think that's my favorite thing to do, is to pray with my small group members because I know that only Jesus can help and save. Lastly, the voice recognizes that saving powers comes from, come from the Word. God has given us each a voice, but before we are to point others to the Word, do you love the Word? Do you treasure the Word? Do you delight in the Word? Do you study the Word? Because if we are, to, we are, if, because if we are not in love with the Word ourselves, how are we to tell others to love the Word, right? I'll give you two suggestions how I can practice this. Number one, I said, learn to slow down and listen. This is probably the most difficult application for me. Listen to the Word. Listen to the Spirit. You can't rush this process. We must create space and time every day to be a learner, a student of the Word and of the Holy Spirit. And then we can learn to listen to people. Listen not to fix people, but listen to understand. Listen to the root cause of, of the person. I think when I wake up every morning, I'm not thinking this. Today, my goal in life is to slow down and listen to Jesus. That's probably the last thing on my mind. I don't wake up and say, today I'm going to wake up and listen to Jesus. I'm going to listen to my wife. I'm going to listen to my kids. And I'm going to just try to understand. No, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to tell my wife what to do today. I'm going to tell Jesus what to do. And certainly, I'm going to tell my kids what to do, right? We must learn to slow down to listen, gain the right to speak. Secondly, learn to ask good questions. I love how God used good questions in dealing with sinners. Adam, where are you? That is so restorative. That is so kind and gentle, right? If I was God, I was like, Adam, get over here. What did you do? <laughs> you are in trouble, mister. Spank, spank. No more iPad for you. <laughs> no more, right? God used a question to bring Adam back to himself. Learn to ask good questions. A friend of mine said, a question pricks the conscience while an accusation hardens the heart. No matter what kind of career you may have, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you're a student, a teacher, an Uber driver, a CEO, you have been given a voice, use your voice to point others to Jesus. 
and do it in a very organic way. I'll give you one more example. I recently befriended a neighbor uh, from Nepal. I have a lot of Nepalis around me. And one day, I took him to Burke to run. I nearly killed him. He never ran, and then and, you know, I tried to make him do four and a half. I was like, that's not a bad, good idea. He forgave me. Um, so one day, uh, he said, hey, Hank, could you give me a ride? I have an interview today. I said, absolutely. Put him in the car, and the first thing before I drive, I'm an awful driver. I said, let us pray. Let's pray. Certainly, I pray for his you know, interview. And so a couple of days later, I mean, after the interview, he texted me. He said, Hank, could you pray to Jesus that I get the job? I said, absolutely. Let us pray. We pray again. Point him to Jesus. A couple of days later, when we drop off our kids at the bus stop, he said, I got the job. And I said, thank you, Jesus. Begin to worship Jesus in the parking lot. He doesn't know I'm worshiping, but I'm worshiping, right? And so I'm so excited. I can't wait to. I invited him to come, but he said, I have to go to a holy place. So I said, yeah, me too. So maybe I go to your place, and maybe you go to my place next time, you know? By the way, I asked him for permission to share his story, so he's so excited. Our job is so simple. We, we can't save people. You don't have to. But all we have to do is point people to Jesus so that he can do the saving part, right? And do it in the everyday life stuff. I mean, if you want to take an evangelism class 101, great. I love that class. Invite me to that class. But you don't have to. God has given you a voice. God has given you a relationship. Do it. Do it organically. John continued to describe Jesus as a source of life and light. First of all, life is only found in Jesus, the Son of God. Back in verse 4, John already said, In him was, li was life, and the life was the light of men. Everything in creation is dependent on something else in order to, to survive. The only independent, self-sustaining being is Jesus, right? You think you're independent? You're not. The clothing you wear is probably made in China, Vietnam. My people made it, right? <laughs> Everything is dependent on Jesus. So do you. So, so am I. My youngest is five years old. He wouldn't survive a day without his parents. My wife's number one concern for working outside of the home is this. Will my husband, will my capable husband and three kids survive without me? That's her number one concern. The house is a little bit messy, yeah? But we're okay. Fine, the house is very messy, but we're okay. <laughs> because Jesus is self-sustaining, self-sufficient. Everything comes from him and is dependent on him. He's the source of life, John reminded us. He's also the light of men. Verse 4b, and the life was the light of men. He was not the light, John the Baptist, but came to bear witness about the light. The word light is repeated seven times in these nine verses. What and where was the brightest light in the Jewish tradition? Anybody? A thousand points. I'm just kidding. I found this quote by Spurgeon, and he said this. A little bit long, so bear with me. Now remember that in the Jewish church, greatest glory was that God tabernacle in his midst. The greatest glory of the tabernacle itself was the most holy place. In the most holy place, there stood the Ark of the Covenant, bearing its golden lid, called the mercy seat. Over the mercy seat stood the cherubim who winged 
of the cherubims, there was a bright light known to the Hebrew believer by the name of the, of the Shekinah. That light represents the presence of God. Emitting above the light, there might be seen a night of, uh, at night a pillar of fire, and by day a spiral column of cloud rose from it. The glory of the tabernacle was the Shekinah. Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. Last Sunday, Pastor Matthew reminded from Hebrews 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God. There is no brighter light than Jesus. Ever since the fall of man, God has been dropping clues and hints about this ultimate light in Christ in the Old Testament. It might be dimmer in the Old Testament, but it was there. The first sighting of this promise of light is found in a very unusual place. In Genesis 3.15, in the middle of a curse, God said to the serpent or Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice the word offspring or seed is singular. The promise of God is that one day, one of Eve's offspring will bruise Satan's head, while Satan can only strike his heel, which is more devastating. Get punched in the leg or punch in the head? Punch in the head, right? Who is this offspring that's going to bruise Satan's head? That offspring is Jesus, Son of God. Jesus would destroy Satan and sin once and for all through his death and resurrection. First Peter 1.20 said, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last day for our sake. Before God created the heavens and the earth, the Father set aside Jesus to be life of the world. Before Adam and Eve took that forbidden fruit and ate, the Father set aside Jesus to pay for their sin. Before you were not ever born, before you can even crawl or walk or say, cuckoo, gaga. Only I do that, right? Before the Father already set aside Jesus to die in your place, this promise of light shine brightly in the backdrop of the fall. What a beautiful signing of this first light. But what comforts me is the, is the placement of this verse. After the fall of man, God turned to the serpent, the liar, the accuser, the deceiver, Satan himself, and cursed him. But in the middle of this curse, a message of hope, restoration, and forgiveness shone forth before God spoke word of correction and consequences to Adam and Eve. The message goes something like this in my translation. Satan, you might think that you got them good today, but you don't. But one day, one of Eve's son will destroy you. If you're going to mess with my kids or their kids, you will have to go through me. I will find you, and I will destroy you, and I will crush you. The Apostle Paul said it best. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, here it is, nor angels, nor rulers, nor, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is saying in this verse, nothing will stand between me and my kids. I created them. I will sustain them. When they messed up, I will rescue them. 
just imagine hearing the good news for the first time. God reminded them of who he is and who they are and his commitment to them before he gave the word of correction. I have to confess, at this point of my preparation, I was just on the floor sobbing. Do you discipline, correct your kids like this? I don't. This is my way of discipline. I either bribe them with sugar or I threaten them by taking away their devices. But our Father gave Adam and Eve the good news, love, a hug, before he gave the word of correction. What a loving father he is, amen? All of the dim light of the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus, the ultimate light. And this light has come. This light is here. The logic of John is that if we have experienced the joy of walking in the light with him and with others, it is impossible for us not to point others to the light. Do you know someone who is walking in darkness this morning? Someone who might need Jesus? Ask God for an opportunity to share Christ with them. Ask God for the opportunity to point them toward Jesus. Use your story of how God helped you out of darkness. Your story is a powerful tool. We're not the ultimate light. We're to point others to the light because Jesus is the source of life and he's the light of men. Our last point, and only those who receive Jesus will have eternal life. Pick it up in verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Verses 9 to 11 speak of those who reject the light. The word world is repeated 78 times in this gospel alone, 185 times in the New Testament. John liked this word a lot. In the original language, this word, this word describes not just the physical world or the people of the world, but it speaks to the evil system of the world dominated by sin and Satan. Jesus literally lived, entered and lived in the world for 33 years as the brightest light. The world he created, but the world did not recognize him. How could that be possible, right? Not only that, his people, the people who have been waiting for the promised Messiah, they have the writing and story about the Messiah. They too did not receive him. They rejected him. To reject the light of God revealed in creation is pretty serious since God has been dropping hints all around us. Read Psalm 19, right? But to reject the light of God revealed in Scripture is also more serious. Pretty serious. But to reject the radiance of the glory of God, the second person of the Trinity in human form, the ultimate light of the world, Jesus, Son of God, now that is just wrong. There are severe consequences for that kind of rejection. And so no wonder JB often said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to the Pharisees and Jews. JB was like, you are asking the wrong question and you are talking to the wrong dude. Please, look at Jesus. Please be more concerned about Jesus. 
Please behold Jesus. Focus on Jesus for salvation is from Jesus. Life is from Jesus. Light is in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. Apart from Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no redemption apart from Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look to Him. Stop coming to me. I'm not that guy, but He is. The world rejects Him. His own people reject him. What about you? Will you receive Christ? Or will you re- receive, uh, reject him? Look at this beautiful invitation. Verse 12. But to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Verse Verses 12 to 13 stand in contrast with verses 9 to 11. John gives us a blueprint to his entire gospel account. While chapter 1 and 12 emphasis the rejection of Christ, verses chapter 13 to 21 focus on the, those who receive Christ. To receive Christ is to believe that he is the true life of the world. All of the man-made life in the world will leave you empty, hungry, miserable, and broken. To receive Christ is to acknowledge his claim as a Messiah. Because he is creator, sustainer, savior of the world, you don't have to be. To receive Christ is to yield allegiance to him. My good friend, Tim Keller, with Best Buds, helped me understand the difference between these two things. He said the gospel is good news and not good advice. Maybe you saw uh, this on, online. Advice is what we should do. News are reports of what's been done, right? Um, I'm going to go off script for a second. I've been hearing about pumpkin pie and stuff like that. So this is good advice. A friend will give you a recipe. You go home and you follow the good advice. You have to follow the instruction. Me, I'll probably mess it up because I don't like to follow instruction. I'll add whatever stuff I want. So you kind of come out with a bad pie. But here's good news. Somebody made the pie and give it to you. And you'll be like, wow, this is really good. Can I take a bite? You receive it and you eat it. And then if there's some leftover, you'll be like, hey, Kanade, come, try it. You, you declare the good news. But if you're so hungry, you don't have to. Just enjoy it. And it's okay. You see the difference between a good advice and good news? The good news is that we were born in darkness and sin. We deserve death and separation from a holy God. But God in his mercy sent us his son to die on the cross and rose again, defeat sin and death. Romans 10, 9. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is nothing you have to do to add to what Jesus had already done for you on the cross. There is nothing. Do you remember the last thing Jesus said on the cross in John 19, verse 30? After he had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished? The redemption of Adam's race had been brought to completion. The payment of sin had been paid in full. The promise in Genesis 3 had been fulfilled. It is finished. It is complete. It is done. There is nothing you can do to add to the good news except to receive it and then to declare it. You see that? I'm so thankful the gospel is not good advice, but it's good news. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Because we are dead in our sin. Even the act of asking God for help is something we cannot do on our own because we're so blind in our darkness. God has to take the first step. God has to awaken our dead heart to open our blind eyes in order for us to see our need of Him, of a Savior. Our act of repentance is proof of His initial grace in our life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Worship team, you can come on up as I give us one last illustration. I was thrilled to reconnect with my uncle Benson this week. He lived in, lives in Vegas, and uh, he, after he lived, uh, moved uh, to America, he was instrumental uh, with my aunt ba Becky to help us to move from Vietnam to the U.S. And uh, I'll just tell you a funny story. When I first came, I was 12 years old. He took me to a store, my fond memory of Uncle Benson. And he showed me this white device, and then he made me wear it. And so the whole week, I was walking like this. I never wore underwear before <laughs> in Vietnam. And now I'm like, wow, I have to become American. And this is the first thing I gotta do. I said, I don't like America, it's bad, no. <laughs> he took me to where he worked in the casino, and it was shocking. Vietnam, you know, playing outside, rain, gecko, and then casino, neon light. My world was upside down. Um, but I was able to get on the phone with him. Um, recently, he got saved and got baptized. And uh, he told me that my father preached the gospel to him for 40 years. And he rejected Jesus for 40 years because he simply loved the world and the pleasure of the world. And when he shared his testimony in front of his church, he invited some of his friends to come. And he declared, the pleasure of God is greater than the pleasure of the world. Jesus is the light. When you have Jesus, you have everything. And uh, so we pray together. I was so blessed. His countenance changed. I mean, he's just a different person. I don't know how to explain it. He's happier, less anxious, less. He's just calm. Pastor Matthew explained verse 13 to me in this way. That was really helpful. He said, God will call you his child, not because of your background, your status, or who you're connected to. God will call you his child only on the basis of what Jesus has done. If you walk into this auditorium in darkness this morning, you don't have to stay in darkness. You can walk out of here in light. Would you open up your heart to receive Christ? Would you stop playing church, playing God? I tried it many years and it never worked. Just give your life to the one who loves you and who is sustaining you right now.